0: Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the one and only Dan Z, and I are recording this show on Wednesday, February 4th. Uh, uh, By the way, folks, I don't know how many of you were following Dan on Twitter. Uh, He regularly tweets out some very cool items on his Coffee and Kenobi account. And, uh, Dan, I just want to say this past week, I particularly enjoyed that Vanity Fair piece you found about the effects for Rise of Skywalker. Is that the Um, Bresnikian piece? I think so. I just, I loved especially the footage of how they worked with the Carrie Fisher stuff from The Force Awakens,
1: yes, and, and incorporated into The Rise of
0: Skywalker. Just yeah, yeah. I Incredi- mean, absolutely incredible. Just how could you not win an Oscar for this? Oh no, 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 totally, totally. But again, for me, what's fascinating is the the choices they made. I mean, they they basically kept Carrie's face, so you you got the emotion, you got the reality of that performance. But then everything else—from what they, they changed her hairstyle, her wardrobe, the setting she was in—and uh, you look at the finished footage, and you you'd never, never know that this wasn't shot right there on the set. Right. It's it's. Uh, I mean,
1: it, it really is stunning. I had someone say to me mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. They said, mm-hmm. "I'm really confused, Dan." wasn't Carrie Fisher, didn't she pass away before this movie? Because it seems like they filmed her stuff already. And mm-hmm. because this person didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I got to tell them about this article and about what the mag- the magic that Lucasfilm and ILM produced, and he couldn't believe it. I mean, it's it really is pretty cool that that is the effect it's having on people who don't necessarily follow it as closely as you and I do.
0: And And the other bit out of this that I found just fascinating was the... Uh, the battle on the wreckage of the the Death Star between Ray and Kylo Ren, and I mean, in the finished film, it it's you know it's you know it's it's a stormy sea around them, waves crashing down on them, and you look at where they started, where it's what you know it's it's a chunk of set, it's a a piece of blue screen. And then, again, they just walk you through the different layers of, of how they created this different reality. Uh, but, again, folks, long story short, if you want to see some really, really cool stuff, you should definitely be signed up for the for the Coffee with Kenobi Twitter feed.
1: Uh, I appreciate that. And, and, though that article Lisa Dullard posted, she does a ton of social media scheduling and promotions for me on Coffee with Kenobi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So all I'll props to her for that.
0: Oh, very cool. Okay, and and while we're talking about Carrie Fisher, I I spent the last week or two reading two books about this late uh, Star Wars fan favorite. There's uh, Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge by Sheila Weller, and then there's Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, which is written by Darwin Porter and Danforth Prince. Um, And what's, what's kind of intriguing about these two books is they both talk about how Carrie Fisher was not, in fact, George Lucas's first choice of Princess Leia that, that Jodie Foster was. And, I, you know, I, I guess the issue was that when George was casting, um, Jodie was still under contract for two more pictures at Disney and they wouldn't release her from, from the contract. So uh, Carrie kind of got the role by default. Um, and what's, what's especially interesting is in, uh, the, the Care Fisher and and Debbie Reynolds is this, this moment where he describes, it's 1973, uh, Debbie Reynolds is on Broadway appearing in a revival of Irene and her old co-star James Garner comes to visit her at the theater and they, the two of them start talking about their careers. And the, the the quote that I thought would interest looking at film fans is, That here's Garner talking with Reynolds about I've done pictures that I'm ashamed of, and this latest one for Disney is One Little Indian is 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 one of the duds. The only bright start, a bright spot of the whole movie is my ten year old co star Jodie Foster. Um, okay, so you know Jodie Foster was born in November of 1962. One Little Indian shoots in the fall of '72, so Garner's story about her being ten years old checks out. Um, okay, so we jump ahead to August of 1975 when George is casting Star Wars. And, okay, help me with the math here, Dan. That uh-huh. means that that Jodie Foster would have been almost 13 at the time? Uh,
1: that's, that's probably right. I mean, you are talking to an English teacher, but that sounds about right. <laughs> okay.
0: So, um and now on the other hand uh Carrie Fisher is born October 56 and when she wins the role by default um she's 18 uh you know so so if you you think about it if Disney had actually released her um this would have been a 13 or 14 year old princess leia which uh, would have really changed the film don't you think or- oh yeah i
1: mean i mean i don't know how you know, if she looked older than she was at that time, but yeah, it would have been a whole different dynamic, and I don't think they could have uh, realistically had anything. There'd be any kind of chemistry with her and Harrison Ford because mm-hmm. he was already he's already what was
0: he? How much older is he than Carrie Fisher? Well, at the, was the, he twelve years older than Carrie Fisher? He was. He's right? born July nineteen forty two. So when oh, he wow. auditioned, he was thirty three. Uh, to you know, to her, eighteen years old. So right. So um, gosh, yeah, that, I, yeah. Couldn't, so not have worked. Well, but but the the other interesting thing here is that Jody was not the only Disney contract player that George brought in to read for roles in Star Wars. In fact, you can go online right now. Uh, head over to YouTube, and you can see the a six minute long piece of footage of Kurt Russell's audition for Han Solo. And he was a uh, 24 at the time. So, um, you know, and, and, and I don't need to explain to you, Dan, that the George really did kind of mix things up when he was doing the auditions, uh, you know, just trying out different pairings, trying out, you know, actors of different ages and that sort of thing. But, um, That you know, and I think we were as we were pre gaming when I mentioned Kurt Russell. It's like that. Don't get me wrong; you like Kurt Russell, but he just doesn't have the swagger that Harrison Ford does. Um, It's not
1: the same. I mean, he's he just. I mean, he obviously he has a a similar sort of an archetype about him, if that's even a thing. mm -hmm. But it's just not. It's not the same kind of gravitas, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got the grip, but not the gravitas that Harrison Mm -hmm. does.
0: Well, you know, speaking of. You know, uh, again, you know, thinking of um, you know, actors, you know, different actors in different parts. And no, face it, you know, um, you and I both enjoyed the, the the gentleman who played, you know, the the title role in Solo. That that, you know, Alden Ehrenreich. Yes. Yeah. That he, I thought, it, you know, he actually did a pretty good job of sort of, you know, channeling a proto, you know, Harrison Ford. Agreed. Um, I think he's wonderful. A bright spot. Yeah, and and let's face it, you know, when they were talking about doing the prequels, and it, it's the notion of we were going to get to see a younger Obi wan and it's like who, who you know, who the hell is going to pick up, you know, where Alec Guinness left off? But you um, McGregor did a, a, an amazing job. I think you know he's one of honestly one of the, the strongest pieces of of you know the the, the prequels. Oh, um, I agree. And and speaking again of of you know Ewan and his performance of, of Obi Wan. Now we've been following uh, you know the the Obi Wan limited series for Disney Plus. In fact, on on the last show that, that Dan and I recorded, we shared the rumor that uh, this limited series from Lucasfilm that that's eventually going to air on Disney's new subscription service, um, production suddenly shut down, uh, or rather pre production suddenly shut down last week or thereabouts at Pinewood and uh, supposedly crew got sent home and it's like, and so everyone kind of got concerned about this. And, um, and the interesting thing is just today, uh, Ewan McGregor was on good morning America uh, and he was there to promote birds of prey, which Warner brothers is releasing to theaters this coming Friday. Uh and over the course of the interview, Michael Strahan um you know, asked him flat out, you know, so what's going on with the yeah. Obi Wan series? And um and, you know, and, and what um you know, what you had basically said was that, you know, uh we're gonna start shooting after the first of the year, and as in the first of the year in two thousand twenty one that um, they have a bunch of scripts uh, that he's read that he really liked, uh, but they're in the process of rewriting them to make them that much better. Uh, And, uh, you know, and again, you know, the, what's kind of interesting about this is the Hollywood Reporter and Collider have also done some work on this story. And I don't know how much of this you've heard, Dan, but, um, basically, evidently, the problem that they were having with obi One now, uh, is directly related to the Mandalorian. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. I, well, I think about it. The Mandalorian is, is basically about, you know, uh, you know, this, this, this crusty warrior who, you know, almost begrudgingly becomes, you know, the guardian of, of the child. And, you know, and, and it's, you face it, it debuted in November of last year, it became this huge pop culture phenomenon. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, it was the big piece of news that just came out of the Disney quarterly earnings call that we finally now know when season two of this thing is going to begin. Uh, that's what October of, of this year is, is, am I remembering that correctly? That sounds right to me.
1: Yes. Cause I've uh, already got the countdown on my.
0: <laughs> My daily post-it notes. All right. Well, the other thing that's worth noting here is Iger basically talked about the fact that what they want to do with season two of The Mandalorian is sort of loaded up with characters that potentially could step away and have their own shows. And uh, what what I've heard repeatedly coming out of Lucasfilm and Disney is the, and I apologize, I'm blanking her name, but the the female, there we go
1: played yeah. played by Gina Carano.
0: Yeah, that evidently she's already considered the breakout character for Mandalorian and that they are, you know, looking as part of season 2 to sort of create her own story arc and allow her to step away and have her own show.
1: Wow. Um, as long as it doesn't take away from the chemistry of the Mandalorian because yes, I think that'd be cool to for her own spin-off show, but I hope that doesn't take away from her time on the Mandalorian itself, because they've really got something pretty cool with the, I, the connection
0: of that core. I totally agree. But, but here's the interesting thing that, okay. So uh, the, the first set of scripts that were written for the Obi-Wan series uh, supposedly dealt with, you know, again, if we remember the end of, uh you know, revenge of the Sith, you know, that, that, Obi Wan, you know, delivers you know Luke to Lars and and you know uh, Aunt Beru.
1: Uncle Owen and, and Aunt Peru, yeah.
0: There we go, and then he sort of disappears into the wastelands of of Tatooine, and you know, uh, <laughs> roughly stays in hiding for the next sixteen years till, till Luke seeks him out. Um, nineteen, actually. Nineteen years. He's nineteen yeah, years old. Wow. Well, it's nineteen okay. years between
1: uh, Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, Okay. so supposedly the original story for the Obi-Wan limited series for Disney Plus was that some incident occurs that forces uh, Obi-Wan to sort of come out of hiding and go check on the the toddler versions of Luke and Leia. And 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 the weird part of it is, is that everyone was happy with the storyline until The Mandalorian debuted. And then suddenly it's like, wait a minute. You know, uh, this and, and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, Dan, that, you know, from a, you know, a Star Wars mythology point of view, it would make sense that that would be where you'd take the Obi Wan story, right? You know, that he'd be sure. checking on, you know, in fact, didn't, um, was it, no, it was, was it Star Wars Rebels where they actually had that moment on, on Tatooine? After what is it in uh,
1: in the episode Twin Sons when when Maul and Obi Wan face off for the final time mm-hmm. at the very very end they show Luke kind of running uh, into his home on Tatooine mm-hmm. but that's that's as close as it gets. There are a couple of comic books in the Jason Aaron series that started in, in two thousand
0: sixteen no two
1: thousand fifteen mm-hmm. um, where Obi Wan in would help Luke as a teenager, like a young teenager, and he would have these kind of headbutting matches with Uncle Owen. But mm-hmm. he and Luke never actually cross paths, and that is canonical. But okay, so there, there's okay. a couple of them.
0: Well, uh, so again, you know, the, the, it makes sense from a story point of view that that this would be the route. But you know that they'd go that you know again Obi Wan checking in on toddler Luke, toddler Leia. But but now in the wake of the Mandalorian uh, where again, we now have this clan of two, the child and and Mando um, suddenly that story idea seems kind of derivative, you know, as in, Oh, it's, it's the Mandalorian all over again. And it's like, no, this has been part of the star Wars story. You know, the, the, the Skywalker saga for years. Right. Um, Yeah.
1: But, but but him, but is that can't be right that he would check on, Leia on Alderaan too, because that would mean he would leave his post on Tatooine.
0: Well, I, I, again, I'm I'm only telling you what what I've heard from friends at at, at Disney and Lucasfilm, and and more right. to the point, uh, this is why the the scripts are are being rewritten. Interesting thing is they're creeping in the number of episodes supposedly from six to four, hmm. but keeping the the exact same budget, so it will be that much more cinematic. So you know they can do that much bigger set pieces um and the, the interesting thing is um I, again ewan is still very 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 much on board you know that that you know uh i'm sure it's probably disappointing that production got pushed off from uh the middle of this year to the beginning of next year but uh as part of the interview today he talked about you know I, strahan said is it going to be tough to get back into that mindset i mean he it, you know in fact uh, you know ewan talked about I think the last time I made a Star Wars movie was 2003 and it's so it's like is it going to be easy to to get back into the mindset says oh, you know I don't think it'll take 2 minutes I'll put on the cloak and I'll be there. So um <laughs> so again all right so the good news is you know it's still coming it's still happening. Uh downside is not shooting till you know January of 2021 so you know, maybe the latter part of, of 2021, more likely early part of 2022. Right. Um, But uh, evidently, Deborah Chow is still on board as showrunner, uh, and she directed two of the better received episodes of The Mandalorian, uh, Chapter 3, The Sin, and Chapter 7, The, the Reckoning. And speaking of Ms. Uh, Chow... Uh, Kathleen Kennedy was on the red carpet uh, this past Sunday night at London's Royal Albert Hall. She was in town for the British uh, Academy Film Awards. And while she was, uh, you know, sort of doing the, uh, you know, the walking down the carpet, dealing with reporters, that sort of thing, uh, she got asked by someone from The Hollywood Reporter about whether we were ever going to see a woman – uh, direct a star Wars film for theatrical release. And, you know, Kathleen started out by pointing out that Deborah, along with Bryce Dallas Howard had already directed episodes of the Mandalorian. And then went on to say that we've, we've got two or three fantastic women working with star Wars. Uh, we're cultivating a lot of great talent. Uh, and you know, as to why there hasn't been a female director of a, uh, a theatrical uh star wars film yet um you know it's she flat out said look we we want to be sure that we bring in a female director to into do star wars they set up to succeed the, the star wars movies are gigantic films and you just can't come in without essentially no experience so in a weird sort of way at least the way kathleen views the situation that the Mandalorian and you know uh, Obi Wan are almost kind of the farm team, for lack of a better term. Interesting. Uh, I like that yeah. analogy. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. So, so long story short, folks, it's not if a woman will ever get to direct a Star Wars film for theatrical release; it's a when. Mm. Um, and speaking of uh, when things might happen, she, uh, Kathleen, also while she was on the red carpet for the. Uh, you know the the British uh, Film Academy Awards. Uh, got asked about Indy Indiana Jones Five, and I it's, this kind of concerned me, Dan. I get, what she said is that we're working away at getting a script. They are getting the script where we want it to be, and then we'll be ready to go. Harrison will be evo- uh, involved. Involved. It. It's not a reboot. It's a continuation, and he can't wait. Um. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I can't wait for him to do it either. I mean, he's, I mean, gosh, I, I, I just don't know why, how long does it take to make a script? It's like they're, they're reworking the entire Bible they are well, working on a script for years, haven't they?
0: Well, uh, here's the thing. Here's what I just heard from a, a friend at Disney and, and it's, it's a it's a it's a weird kind of complication. Uh, basically, have you must have seen the trailer that's out there now for the Jungle Cruise, the uh, Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt film?
1: Yeah, um, plus I saw a lot of footage of it at D twenty three.
0: Okay, all right. Um, evidently, uh, it, it's coming out this summer. In fact, what, what's kind of concerning is it's coming out July twenty fourth, two thousand twenty. And Indiana Jones 5 already has a locked-in release date of July 9th, 2021. So basically a year apart, you know, give or take two weeks. Um, And evidently Jungle Cruise, the movie, has turned out really, really, really well. In fact, there's a lot of talk at Disney that this may be the film franchise to replace Pirates of the Caribbean, which kind of petered out in 2017 with the fifth installment of uh, Dead Med Tell No Tales. Um, but but the problem is that Indiana Jones 5 and the Jungle Cruise movie uh, share an aesthetic, share some settings. Uh, and there's just kind of a concern that next to Emily Blunt and, and Dwayne Johnson, uh you know kind of at the top of their form, bringing in Harrison Ford, who again born in <laughs> in nineteen you know uh, forty two um you know the 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 concern is that you know that just even with Steven Spielberg doing his you know, masterful direction, this may look kind of dated. Um, so evidently that's why the script now, and and remember that this thing is supposed to start shooting in April in London. Um, so, you know, the, the fact is that, uh, these rewrites are kind of being done to the effect of, okay, you know, we don't, we, we want this particularly sitting alongside of the jungle cruise to really look good. Um, we'll know more Dan in the coming week, uh, because Harrison Ford, is going to start making the rounds of the morning talk shows and late night shows like Kimmel and Fallon, uh, because he's going to be out talking up call of the wild, which Disney is sure. releasing to theaters on uh, February 21st. So um, hopefully uh, he'll, you know, he'll uh, be a little bit more on the record about what's going on with the film. If they are in fact, starting in April, because Face it, if if they start shooting on April 1st, there are still only 15 months to deliver a finished film.
1: Right, um, that seems too optimistic considering how slow things are moving.
0: Yeah, so I mean, well, I, I,
1: I, I, w- I really want it to happen. I couldn't want it anymore. It's my very favorite, but gosh, I mean, the, the irony is that they're worried about it's going to feel dated, but he's not going to. Get any younger i
0: mean nobody is but you know no no they can't sit the way back so uh, speaking of stuff uh uh february 21st uh on that very same day uh over on disney plus the first new episodes of season seven of star wars the clone wars uh begin airing and it's it's been six uh six years now since uh we we last you know got a new episode of the show is there Anything in particular that you're looking forward to, uh, Dan? Other than, of course, the re- you know the return of a Tana?
1: right? Well, we talked about this a little bit last episode, but mm-hmm. but I, what I will say is that I'm looking forward to an expansion mm-hmm. of more of Anakin and Obi Wan's story mm-hmm. because this will be right before you know the big turn that changes Anakin from the light side to the dark side and Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's going to be apparently running concurrently with Revenge of the Sith is great. I've always thought it would be really cool to see how Palpatine is captured mm-hmm. canonically because it's never happened. We've seen it in Labyrinth of Evil by Matthew Stover in the book. We've seen it in the Tartakovsky animated shorts, and those were both great spins mm-hmm. on that. But we've never seen the canonical version. So I want to see how Dave Filoni would tell that story. That That honestly might be my number one thing. Okay. At least immediately into Revenge of the Sith. In fact, mm-hmm. if they leave Coruscant and race to find the Chancellor on Grievous' Star Cruiser, and that's how the Clone Wars ends, to me, that would be perfection.
0: Yeah, okay. That, that That's a that, that, good answer. Looking forward to this myself. And uh, speaking of the way shows end, um, it's Sunday, January 26th, we had the last two episodes of Star Wars Resistance air on the Disney Channel, and I, I know you were behind the last time we talked. And any, any chance you got to catch up a little bit on this Lucasfilm animation show, or
1: yeah, and I think it was, I thought it was very satisfying. I liked the show. It certainly kind of flew under the radar compared to Rebels and Clone Wars, but mm-hmm. I like the tie-ins. I like. Um, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of stuff online of how some of these vehicles show up at the end of The Rise of Skywalker. And I just thought it was really fun. I hope that people give it a chance. The fact that season two will be out on Disney Plus at the end of the month, I think mm-hmm. will certainly help that happen. But, yeah, it was it was great fun.
0: Okay. And are you were happy with the way things wrapped up. I mean, face it, it, it was always more of a kid's show. And so that, you know, Tam... You know, and again, I, I apologize for spoilers for folks who haven't necessarily seen the show. But, uh you know, Tam had second thoughts about the First Order and, you know, reached out to her friends on the Colossus. Um, were, you, were you happy with the way it wrapped? Or Yeah, that was
1: cool. i I like to say, again, I thought it was a nice sort of a way to sort of tie things in, give you a little bit of suspense and intrigue, just the right amount of that. Mm-hmm. And it was a little frustrating too, because you've you, I mean that's part of the challenge of building suspense as well. But frustrating in a good storytelling way.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. What about what about you? I, I again, you know that that's uh, it's. I thought if I have a criticism now, and in fact it's it's kind of weird because again I, I I will admit on previous podcasts, uh, you know I've been kind of hard on the show, but you know especially the last couple of episodes you just got the sense that they were running for the curtain that they were telling you know stories that perhaps you know would have spun out uh more leisurely as part of season 3 uh were being told you know in, in the final moments of season 2 and um I, I guess you know there's that old show business adage always leave them wanting more and that was i guess the way the show ended it's like oh it's over i I was really getting into this so yeah. Um, no, I so, agree. I agree. You know, so, um. Oh, oh, by the way, at the top of the show, we were talking about you know all the cool stuff that that Dan tweets out, but there are other folks who who tweet out interesting stuff. And I don't. Did you see the tweet today from Abbey Road Studios? No, I didn't. Okay. Well, it turns out this, uh, this is what they tweeted out. This week uh, in 1999, recording began for the score of Star Wars episode one, The Phantom Menace, wow. uh, composing conducted by John Williams and performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. This was the first Star Wars score that Williams had composed in over 16 years. And it, it's worth seeking out, uh, because the, 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 this you know this tweet was also accompanied by a video um and I, i'm i'm blanking the name of the scene in the film but it's it's the epic uh uh you know the uh, uh lightsaber battle between uh obi-wan and darth Maul and you know with that that amazing oh, wait a
1: duel of the fates yeah, yeah.
0: Amazing choral piece, you know that, that goes with it. So they show the the actual chorus there in the building, sing along with the orchestra. And um, I, I bring this up because just last week, again, you know, uh, the, the, you know, he directs his first Star Wars in sixteen years back in nineteen ninety nine. Just last week, John Williams picked up his twenty fifth Grammy Award. And it was a Star Wars-related win. Uh, Oddly enough, not for the the score for uh, Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker, but rather for the area music that Williams composed for Black Spire Outpost at Disneyland Park at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, uh, To be specific, Dan, what what John took home was the Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition, uh, and the composition he won for was entitled Star Wars, Galaxy's Edge, Symphonic Suite, um, which, by the way, if you want to hear this, um, is this four-minute and 57-long uh, composition that that evidently Imagineering had him write for the land. Uh, it's actually available for purchase on iTunes right now. Um, I, I, are you, you familiar with this piece at all, Dan? Or
1: I love it so much. I think it's an absolutely perfect blend of Star Wars and theme park music. Mm-hmm. It just... Atmospheric, it's inspiring. It does play during Smuggler's Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just I love it. I was so happy to see that him see him get recognition for that because I think it's a beautiful piece. And on Spotify mm-hmm. on their Star Wars playlist, it's one of the songs that's in there. So when I'm doing things around the house or at events, I have that kind of playing in the background, and whenever that comes up, I just can't help but smile
0: wow okay i i i, I will tell you what folks we'll, we'll pause here for a moment so for those of you who want to go over to itunes and chase down star wars uh galaxy's Edge, the symphonic suite and when dan get back uh dan and i get back we're going to share a star wars latest that's maybe not as sweet this episode is brought to you by paramount plus Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming
1: on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com
0: to try it free. We're back, and on previous shows in, you've talked about all the Star Wars related books you you regularly receive is, is what are you reading now? There's there's a couple of fun
1: ones that Mason and I read. There, there's a great one that came out late in December called Star Wars The Galaxy Needs You by Caitlin Kennedy. And it's got Ray on the front holding up the lightsaber with BB-8. And it's very much kind of a feel-good piece with a lot of wonderful aphorisms in it that is just absolutely inspiring and great for children. But then the one that I just got is also by Caitlin Kennedy with art by Brian Kessinger. And it's called Star Wars R2-D2 Is Lost. The majority of it takes place on Endor. The art is great. It very much feels like a Calvin and Hobbes book. It's fun. The other day I was driving and my son was in the back seat, and he read it aloud to me and he's six years old. And it was just it was wonderful to hear it from his sweet voice, of course. But just, uh, you know, the, the fun and they kind of retell the story of Return of the Jedi and they, they put in some new stuff. And it's really pretty charming.
0: Well, I'll have to seek that out.
1: So we're not talking like, um, it's not a heavy novel, but it's just fun.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. Again, I I enjoy Star Wars and all of the flavors that comes in. More to the point, I enjoy finding Star Wars-related stories in weird places. Uh, A book I, I read back over the holidays, Life Isn't Everything, Mike Nichols, Remembered by 150 of His Closest Friends. Uh, this Henry and company published this back in November of, of 2019. And, um, for those of you who are too young to know who Mike Nichols is, he was half of the groundbreaking comedy team Nichols and May. He was the guy who directed the original Broadway production of Neil Simon's The Odd Couple. He also directed the movie version of The Graduate. Uh, he was the guy who helped turn Eric Idle turn Monty Python or the Holy Grail into the long running musical Spamalot. Uh, and, uh, you know, from 1998 till his death in November of 2014, he was happily married to ABC news anchor and Disney legend, Diane Sawyer. Um, so he long story short, true legend in entertainment circles, virtually everything he worked on became an enormous success, which is why everybody wanted to work with Mike Nichols. Um, which brings us to chapter eight of life isn't everything, which is entitled, we must work together. Um, and Dan, this, this chapter starts out with an anecdote by Tony Walton, uh, who is the Tony and Emmy award winning designer that most Disney fans will know from his work on the original Mary Poppins, uh, which was released in theater August of 64. Um, anyway, this story starts in the fall of 1976, which is when Nichols, having seen an out of town tryout of the musical version of Annie, which started out life at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Hampstead, Connecticut. He decided he wanted to bring the show to Broadway. But for the Broadway version of Andy, he Mike wanted bigger and better sets than the ones he saw at the Goodspeed Opera House, which is why he reaches out to Walton, uh, who's no slouch when it comes to Broadway shows, uh, over the four years previous to this, Tony had worked, uh, worked with Bob Fosse on his two hit shows, Pippin, which opened on Broadway in October of 72, and then Chicago, which opened in June of, of 75. So what Nichols was hoping was that Walton could bring this extra layer of showbiz pizzazz to Annie, uh, which would then improve the show's chances of succeeding on Broadway. But Tony based on what he seen at Goodspeed Opera House, he wasn't sure that this musical, which was based on a comic strip that used to be popular back in the 30s, had what it took to to win over a modern-day audience on the Great White Way. So this is the story that I wanted to share with you, Dan, that uh, this is a story that Tony tells and life isn't everything. So, all right, Mike invited me to design Annie when it was about to come to Broadway. I had seen it and said, Mike... Why do you think that's going to, why, why do you think it's going to work? And he just said, trust me, if we get it right, it'll be your annuity. And Walton goes on to say, I had a similar experience with George Lucas. I can, uh, uh, you know, he offered me Star Wars. George asked me if I would do it. And I said, I'm not really interested in futuristic things. I added that if all of these high tech wonders were rusting and falling to bits, I'd find that in some way appealing to get on board. And, and, and Walton goes on and the cheeky bugger, he actually ended up using that idea. Um, and, you know, and he closes out the story after the success of Annie. Mike never tormented me about it, but George did every time he, I saw him. So, you know, I, I guess for me, you know, the, the notion is that. You know, and think about this, um, you know, to be fair, when, when, um, when George reached out to, to, to Walton, uh, this would have been February of 1975 when 20th Century Fox had finally given George 5 million to go off and shoot the Star Wars from the adventures of Luke Starkiller. Um, he was just coming off of working on Murder on the Orange Express. And, uh, you know, that this film came out in theaters in November of 1974. It was this huge hit for Paramount. Uh, and Walton wound up being nominated for Academy Awards for Best Costume Design. Uh, and, you know, he, he ends up losing to the Great Gatsby. But, um, so yeah, somewhere between February of 75, uh, when George Lucas gets, you know, uh, gets that five million from, from, from Fox and, and April 4th, which is when the Academy Awards are, are happening. Uh, and, you know, he's potentially going to win an award for uh, his work on the Already Express. Um, you know, so Lucas is supposedly talking with Walton about how he wants to shoot this thing on location in places like Tunisia. Um, whereas Sidney Lamette, you know, the guy he just worked with on Murder of the Already Express, is, is also wooing Walton, you know, that he's offering the opportunity to work on his next film, which will be a movie version of Equus, which is going to be shot up in Canada uh, in November December of December of 1976. And so to Tony's way of thinking, you know, uh, let's see, I could go to the desert of Tunisia, uh, you know, I could be the art director on this sci-fi movie uh, and, you know, this brutally hot, you know, environment, or I could shoot in Canada, which is close to, my friends and family. And so that's it. He turns down the job basically because it's like, you know, I, I'd like to be closer to home and I'd like to not have to travel to extreme environments to shoot this movie. And um, you got to feel for the poor slob because spring of 77 inside of one five week period, Dan, Annie opens on Broadway and becomes this smash hit. And then just a few weeks later, Star Wars opens and becomes the top grossing film of all time. And to add insult to injury, Equus comes out in October of that same year and seriously underperforms the bar I mean, mind you, it it gets a couple of Academy Award nominations, but it it just, you know, it it doesn't do anything. Um, And so, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. It all worked out career-wise, you know, um, you know, that, that I, uh, you know, mind you, Tony still had to go to the, you know, watch the Academy Awards where Equus didn't pick up a single award that year, whereas Star Wars took home six Oscars, including one for best art direction, which Norman Reynolds, you know, was very happy to accept. Um. Long story short, Tony went on to have much professional, uh, you know, recognition and personal success beyond this point. Uh, you know, he he won an Academy Award himself in April of 1980 for his work on Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. He took up a, uh, a Tony in 1992 for the revival of Guys and Dolls, and he even uh, you know landed an Emmy for art direction on Death of a Salesman. But but you have to wonder. How Walton felt back in the spring of seventy seven when these two projects he said no to uh the original Broadway t- production of Annie and Star Wars episode four a new hope um you know came out and were these cultural phenomenas and you know um you know that, that, that you know that's the interesting thing is when you talk with filmmakers they always talk about the one that got away so
1: um, isn't that anyway. isn't that crazy? I and mean, there's probably so many folks in Hollywood around that time. I mean, of course, we know mm-hmm. about stuff with Disney too, and mm-hmm. no one no one really knew. And I and sometimes I wonder if part of the reason of the success of Star Wars was because it was so original and surprising, and people were not expecting it at all. I mean, I think today's modern audiences who fall in love with the prequels and, and the newer stuff and the Mandalorian just have no idea of how. Uh, a lot of incredibly talented, savvy people with a lot of clout didn't think it was going to work out and didn't bother to put their hats in the ring.
0: Oh, and God, here we yeah, are now, yeah, yeah. and and it, it it's worth noting that another film that that ILM had a big hand in its success, uh Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I don't know uh if you <laughs> Eddie Murphy was making the rounds uh you know earlier this year promoting Black Dynamite. And during one of his sit-downs, he was talking, you know, is there a film that you turned down that you regret? And he said, oh, my God, yes. And it was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know. And, you know, he just talked about the fact that, you know, he read the script and it's like, how the hell are they going to do this? You know, how are they going to put a live actor next to an animated character and make it believable? And, of course, it was, you know, the guys – at ILM who did all of the amazing shading and shadow on top of all of the amazing animation that Richard Williams and his team did that, that made the two of them mesh. But Eddie to this day regrets that he didn't climb on board when, you know, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg came a calling and, and, you know, I got Robert Zemeckis and I got, you know, George Lucas and ILM on board to do the effects. And it's like, I don't I don't understand how you're gonna do this. And he said no. So yeah, I mean this is this is a more common story than you might think. So um anyway, uh you know, but again, if you, you enjoy great stories, uh folks you really, really, really need to seek out uh Coffee with Kenobi Dance Podcast. Uh have you got anything interesting coming in the pipeline or Well, we finally finished reviewing The Mandalorian and
1: the the last few weeks we've been looking a little bit more closely at the rise of Skywalker because the dust has settled and, it, and it's been out. It's not even really in theaters anymore, except for a few select places. Mm-hmm. So there's still a couple of key points from the film that still haven't really quite set well with me. And I, and I talked to other people about that as well. And then of course we're also getting ready for the return of the clone wars, like we mentioned at the top of the show. Kind of taking a look back, talking about what we're looking the most forward to. It's going to be a ton of fun, and of mm-hmm. course, if you really like hearing uh, the dulcet tones of my voice, um, you can go to our Patreon page. We have a weekly show called CWK Pour Over. We look at Star Wars and other popular culture topics, do some behind the scenes stuff as well. Uh, it's been it's been really really fun. It's been fun, and plus, if you are someone who is thinking about starting up a podcast or a blog. Or you have a brand and you want help expanding it, you can certainly go to danzemedia.com
0: and we can set something up. Hmm, very cool. Um, over at Jim Hill Media, we get a pile of podcasts as, as well. We got, um, of course, the, the the one that started all Disney Dish with Lentesta. We have uh, fine tuning with Dan's good close personal friend Drew Taylor. That's right. Uh, I
1: was right from on this show.
0: We almost got through one. Dang. Yeah, almost. Um, Okay. Uh, We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. Uh, We also have the Marvelous Disney Podcast with Aaron Adams, the gentleman who edits a lot of the shows here. Um, And tell you what, folks, if you you like uh, what Dan and I do, if you could do us both a favor and head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only Coffee with Kenobi, but also uh, looking at Lucasfilm. Uh, that, of course, helps us get additional ears and eyeballs. Uh, on the other hand, if you really, really like what we do, get over to Bandcamp and subscribe. That's very helpful. Uh, and, of course, we talked a little bit about the social media aspect of the show. Uh, you know, Like I said, you really want you know make sure to seek out the stuff that, that Dan is having posted on Twitter, because there's a lot of cool material there. Uh, likewise for, uh, Jim Hill media, we're on Twitter and Instagram and over on Facebook as Jim Hill media news. Uh, and I guess we look forward, Dan and I look forward to seeing you there and we'll be back with the new looking at Lucasfilm shortly. Uh, till then, thanks for listening.